You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by Thomas J. Ord, theologian, philosopher, scholar, and author who teaches on open and relational theology. Now, friends, I was able to read through Tom's book on open and relational theology, an introduction to it, and it was challenging. By challenging, I don't mean it was difficult to read. In fact, he talks about in the episode how he wrote it for even a seventh grader to read, but the ideas helped me see things from a new angle, gave me a new perspective. I am still thinking through, even though I read the book weeks ago, I'm still wrestling through some of these ideas because it has an impact on how we understand suffering, prayer, our relationship to God, God's relationship to the future, and a number of other issues. And so in this podcast, Tom was gracious enough to come on and wrestle through some of these questions and topics with us. Now, of course, in a 35 or 40-minute conversation, we couldn't tackle everything, but I think we do get into some really cool directions here. And I would highly recommend that you go check out his website and some of the books in the description below so that you can go deeper. Because even if you don't end up agreeing with everything or becoming an open and relational theologian, there is absolutely something in here in this conversation and in his books that will help you in your walk of faith. It will challenge you and encourage you. So friends, I'm so glad you're here today. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Thomas J. Ord. Tom, welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. It's such an honor to have the chance to spend some time with you today. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. You know, I think I had come to open and relational theology throughout education and kind of hearing it and seeing it in different places, but your book really took it to the next level for me. And I had to have you on because I thought it would be perfect for our listeners to hear because open and relational theology helps answer some really important questions that I think most followers of Jesus ask at some point in their faith journey, it seems. I think that's right. I mean, so many people who hear me speak, uh, lecture, or read my books, send me notes, or come up after a lecture and say, you know, what you said just makes sense. It, it fits the way I live my life. It fits the way my intuitions. It fits at least a general reading of scripture. I'm not going to say that every last biblical passage supports it, but it, it, it supports the general drift of scripture. So I'm happy you found it helpful. So can you give us a basic definition? I have some, I have some really fun directions I think we can go, yeah. but for people to sort of get the, what is all of this about before we get into the specifics, could you just kind of dive into what is open and what is relational and why do they go together? Sure. Let's start with relational. Um, the idea that God is relational and we live in a relational world uh, may seem like pretty obvious to a lot of people, especially people who've read the Bible and, you know, been a part of a church, been a part of uh, practices, uh, engaging with God, because uh, a relational God is a God who not only gives, but also receives a God who influences us in creation but is also influenced by us and by creation. And that's a, actually a fairly common idea amongst most people. And they're surprised to discover it's not common 
amongst the major Christian theologians in history, people like uh, Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Martin Luther, or John Calvin. Those people thought that God was totally unaffected, totally uninfluenced by anything we do, which meant, you know, our prayers didn't really have an effect on God. And, um, and so their God was non-relational. Relational thought says, nope, what we do really affects God. And then the open word refers to God's relation to time and the future. It says that not only has the future not been predetermined or predestined by God, but God doesn't even foreknow it with absolute certainty. In other words, God can't be absolutely certain who's going to be the next president of the United States uh, because that future has not yet been decided and it's not knowable by anyone, including God. And so this idea that God is moving through time with us moment by moment, because God's a relational God, those two ideas are at the very heart of open and relational thought. And then open and relational thinkers usually talk about the primacy of love for God and that God wants us to love, uh, the freedom of creatures, the possibility for real transformation, uh, the God's presence in our lives. A lot of other themes come up, but they're under this big umbrella of open and relational. You know, one thing that came up for me as you were saying that was, I really appreciate the aspect of God not necessarily predetermining the future. And many people who listen to this podcast have read my book, Reintroducing Revelation, where I talk about Revelation not being a prediction of one-time events in the future, but an ongoing look in all times and all places. And yeah. we, we live in a world right now, especially in our Western Christian tradition of yeah, it's all about this future antichrist that's coming, right? Everything's been predicted and, it, and it's led to violence. It's led to a lot of pain. Definitely. But if God isn't already sort of laying out the future, that necessarily isn't the case then. But it, right. does, it does then bring up the question though of Revelation 21 and 22, for example, of the new heaven and the new earth. So how would an open relational understanding of God affect our eschatology, I guess? And, and for those people who don't know eschatology, just the end of times, the renewal of all things, what does this mean for God winning in the end? Yeah, um, open and relational thinkers have different views on what the future will hold and whether or not God will win at the end. Um, and I think instead of sort of painting all of the variety there, I think I'll just talk about my own perspective, if that's all right. Absolutely. Uh, and just, just to say up front that not everybody in the open relational camp would agree with what I'm about to say. Does anyone in every camp ever agree with everything? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, good point. So my view is that God loves everyone and everything, all of creation, moment by moment. And this love of God is inherently uncontrolling, intrinsically or essentially uncontrolling. I like to say God loves everyone and everything, so God simply can't control anyone or anything. Now, if that's true, then the question comes, uh, well, what about the future of the planet, of us as individuals? What about eschatology? Uh, does God win at the end? Does love win? My view is that God always invites us to a loving relationship in this life 
and the next. I happen to believe in an afterlife. I think God always invites and never sends anyone to hell for eternity. In fact, in my view, God never even annihilates anyone. But because God's love is inherently uncontrolling, we can always say no to God. That means there's no sort of guaranteed that could only come by divine omnipotence uh, that the future is going to end up in which love wins. Now, because God never gives up, and I think this love of God is relentless, I think we have the genuine hope that love will win. But love can only win when creatures cooperate with the lover of the universe. And that's something even God can't determine single-handedly. So maybe the short way to put it is, in my view, love winning is a real possibility, but it's not guaranteed in the way that uh, some theologies guarantee it through God's omnipotent controlling power. So I hadn't thought of asking this before, but it, okay. it came up as you were talking. Um, what were your thoughts on Love Wins then by Rob Bell? So I was, we were attenders of Mars Hill when the book came out. So, we, oh. you know, Rob is, Rob, we love Rob, but um, yeah. what you're describing reminds me of a lot, of, a lot of what he was saying in that book and what he was challenging people to consider. Was that a helpful thing for open and relational theology or not really related? I think Rob makes a couple of really important statements in that book that I totally affirm. One is that the idea of the traditional idea of hell, not only doesn't have much biblical support, if any, it doesn't have a lot of support in Christian history, and it doesn't make sense if God is truly loving. I think that's the main gist of his book, and I'm totally on board with that. Another point that he makes in that book that I'm also on board with that he says more near the end is basically making appeal to the love of God. If God is truly loving, if we start with love, then we're not going to go toward the traditional view of hell. I'm totally on board with that. Where I think Rob doesn't do, uh, and I don't think it's in, it, was, it was his intention to do this, he doesn't kind of lay out a real detailed theory about what the afterlife might be and whether or not love will is guaranteed to win at the end. And uh, I try to do that in my own work, and I call it my relentless love theory. I sketch it out in the last chapter of my book, God Can't. But um, the gist of my answer to you is I like that book. I think that we need to have a little bit more detail of what the end is going to look like if uh, love is to win. Yeah, I think he's definitely a, a question asker, trying to sort yes. of get people to think about it rather than point in a specific direction. But so one thing then that some people may be feeling at this point, and honestly, this is something I've been wrestling with now, and I think, I think you provide some answers in the book, so I'm hoping we can dig into that a little bit, but I'm still trying to figure it out in my mind. If God is not controlling or um, knowing of the future, then does that not make God a little less powerful in some sense, right? Like I'm thinking of someone who is praying for a healing, for example, and the heal, you know, of course, it's a very separate conversation to talk about why are people sometimes healed and sometimes not. And that that's probably part of the reason for going toward open and relational. Yeah. But part <laughs> of me starts to wonder if God can't control the future, quote unquote, is there a point in asking for such a prayer? Can God actually do anything? And how do like miracles of Jesus and such work into that type of system? 
Okay, you're loading up on questions. Yes, I am. I am. So I think they're all they're all for me swirling around. Yes, they God's are. Power. They're all related, aren't they're they? They're all related. To how powerful is God? Maybe there's yeah. the one question I'm really trying to ask. All right, let me uh, again lay out my view of this. Not every open and relational thinker would agree with me, but this is how I think about it. I don't believe God can control anyone or anything. Now, that sounds to a lot of people like a limited God. And in some sense, it is limited if you think that God can control things. And obviously, I'm saying God can't, and that's going to sound like a limitation. I, however, do think God is the strongest being in the universe. God is almighty in that sense. I think God provides power to all the things that exist. So God's almighty in that sense. Um, and so God's not like sort of a wimp or a weakling. It's just that I think God is inherently uncontrolling because love comes first in God's nature and love is inherently uncontrolling. So if we start with love and we think that love doesn't control, then we've got a God who's not controlling. Um, this is good news <laughs> to lots of people, especially people who have been hurt who have been abused, who have been um, harmed in deep ways. Because those people, at least many of them, have said to themselves, well, look, um, if God can do anything, then God could have stopped the crap that happened to me and the evil that's in the world. And yet God didn't do that. So either God doesn't love me or God is punishing me, or God has abandoned me, doesn't care what I'm up to, um, or, you know, it's just a big fat mystery, which is the card most people play when this, this subject comes up. And I want to say to those people, why not instead believe that God really does love you, loves you deeply, and wanted to stop what happened to you, but simply couldn't do it single-handedly? And I get letters practically every week from people who hear me say those things, people who've been abused, hurt, and harmed. And they say, thank you. Finally, a picture of a God that makes sense given what's happened to me. So yeah, it is a limited view of God's power if you think God has unlimited power, but I don't think God has that. I don't think that's a plausible view of God's power. So I think this understanding just makes more sense. But let me kind of play this out on uh, one of the issues you raised, and that's the issue of prayer, because that's an important one to me. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about prayer and compare four models of prayer. And the fourth model will be the model I advocate and the one I like, okay? Let's do it. So, Let's do it. <laughs> so first model of prayer is based on the idea that God has predestined things from all eternity. Everything has been determined, not only foreknown by God, but foreordained by God. Now, if you have that view of God's power, then boy, it's awfully hard to make sense of petitionary prayer. I mean, if God has already determined everything that's going to happen in the future, your praying doesn't change the future one lick. There's no change whatsoever. You can ask God all you want, but the future's already been settled and, and decided. So 
even people I know who believe that God predestines everything, they don't actually pray like that. <laughs> they actually pray and ask God to do things, at least a yeah. lot of them, as mm -hmm. if God might have a change of mind or the future could be different. But most people I know don't have a predestining God in mind. So this first model of prayer is not what most people operate out of. It's the second model that most people operate out of. These people think God could single-handedly fix something or bring about some outcome or consequence. And they think that their prayer might somehow influence God to do that. But think about what that implies. If God can just single-handedly fix anything God wants to do, but God sometimes waits until we pray to act, it's as if God is sitting on the sidelines, arm folded, saying, you know, come on, Phil, you need to ask me. You got to ask me. Oh, you've asked me once? Well, ask me again. Mm -hmm. Ask me three times. If you don't pray 67 times, I'm not going to get up my butt and come out and help you out which is not a picture of a loving God, right? We, we think that a loving person, if that person is able to, they're going to do the very best possible, even if we don't ask, because that's what love does. It's like, um, it's like if, if I was out at the lake and I was sitting on the beach or on the side of the lake, and I looked up and saw one of my daughters out in the water starting to drown. And suppose as she's flailing around, she's trying so hard to get to the top, but she doesn't cry out for help. Am I going to say, you know, unless she asked me to dive in and help her out, I'm not getting in that water. Or am I going to say, you know, maybe I should ask the rest of the people on the beach to join. We'll put a prayer chain together on the beach. And, you know, maybe after we've, we've talked about this a while, I'll jump in. No, I'm just going to go right out there and try to rescue her if I'm able. But the God that most people believe in is a God who could fix things single-handedly. And yet for some mysterious reason, doesn't do so at least sometimes until we ask. And that just makes no sense to me. So this third model is usually people who've been around religion a while, maybe been around the church. A lot of them are more liberal in orientation. They've seen the problems that come with the first two models of prayer, especially an intervening God kind of view. And so they have a view that says prayer doesn't change God. It just changes me. It builds my character. It you know, makes me more wise or more humble or more patient or helps me understand the world better. But God isn't affected and my prayers don't actually change outcomes any except outcomes in my own self. I want to propose a fourth way that I think goes beyond that number three way and incorporates what I think is best in the notion that prayer actually makes a difference to us to God, and to the world. So my model has um, three basic ideas in mind. First of all, God is a relational God. What we do really has an effect on God. We don't control God, but all our actions, including prayer, which is an action, actually has an impact or influences God's experience and might affect how God acts in the future. Secondly, I think we live in an interrelated universe. 
And so my actions are not only going to affect God, they're going to affect my body and others in my environment. And who knows how far, if the chaos effect is true in physics, it might go, you know, the whole butterfly thing might affect things on the other side of the globe. But in an interrelated universe, my actions make a difference to me and to others. The third idea takes that openness view and says that God is experiencing time like we are which means that my actions in one moment has an effect on God. And in the next moment, new avenues for God to act might open up, new possibilities, new opportunities might emerge because I acted in the previous moment and because God is now responding to my activity in light of me and my world. So prayer really can make a difference to God, to me, and to others. Now, this model doesn't say that my prayer uh, enables God to control a situation which, when otherwise God you know, couldn't control, because I don't believe in a controlling God. But it does mean that what I do makes a real difference, and the future will be at least somewhat different because I prayed. It's kind of long, Phil, but those are the four models and the, the final one that I recommend. Oh, I appreciate that. And I think most people can find themselves at some point in one of those models and yeah. have probably wrestled with different aspects of them, you know, no matter where they're at. I think my question, and this goes back to where, where all this has sort of been going is, is so if we were to pray for God for a healing or something in an open relational view, would it be God might work through a doctor to bring healing or a medicine? Is there any just straight healing, for example, in this type of, of model? Yeah. Well, I think all healing is straight healing, but I think what you mean is like healing that didn't involve some sort of medical means or something like that. Is yeah. That or right? some sort of explainable way yeah. that something happens in the world. Yeah, I think all healing has some kind of, as you put it, explainable dimension. I would put it this way. All healing has some kind of creaturely contribution or activity that might be physician's hands and, knee, and, you know, and um, knife. It might be medicine. It might be positive thinking. It might be the cells themselves responding to God's action. It might be other parts of the body influencing those parts of the bodies that are sick. It might be the psychosomatic uh, connection between mind and body. Uh, it might be positive thinking, watching funny movies. There's all kinds of interesting literature on healing effects of humor. Um, but my big point is this. I think God really does work to heal, but God can't heal single-handedly. There has to be some other creaturely condition or element or cooperation that makes healing possible. Now, I want to be quick to say, <laughs> I'm not blaming people who aren't healed because they're not <laughs> right. cooperating. Like, right. I'm not blaming the victim here. Like, you didn't have enough faith. I'm not saying yeah. that. Right. Um, it could very well be, and in fact, I find it is often the case that people are in the fullest faith they know how saying yes to God, I want to be healed, but their bodies, their organs, their cells, their muscles 
aren't cooperating or the conditions of their bodies aren't conducive to the kind of healing that God wants to do. So uh, I do believe in healing. I just don't think healing ever comes by God's action alone. And again, I think that's good news. Uh, it may sound weird to some people like, oh, this is a limiting God. But um, I don't know about you, Phil, but the vast majority of prayers I've prayed for people to get healed haven't been answered, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at least not in the obvious way that I was hoping they would be answered, you know, at least not people immediately got better. And right. so I think when we're talking about making sense of God as best we can, we have to also account for unanswered prayer. And my theory can do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's what I, I really appreciate about that aspect of it. And I'm gonna have to wrestle with this a little bit because <laughs> I do, I do agree that there, what I have appreciated as I've read your book and as I've listened to you is the sort of well thought out interconnected web of questions mm. that it's logically consistent. Right. And I really yep. appreciate that aspect of it. And one thing you said that at least helps me is a little is, you know, cause I I've seen some things in my life that I can't fully explain of, yes. of people coming around and I like how you said it might be cells in your body or some other maybe explanation. So it's not ruling out that we have to understand everything. Right. Um, but I do need to keep wrestling with that a little bit. But one aspect of it that absolutely I think is vital is the God partnering or inviting us to partner mm. in the process of redemption and reconciliation. And in your book, it, it, immediately what came to mind for me was right in the beginning, God invite. Now, again, I'm not necessarily saying Adam and Eve historical figures, whether you believe that or not, the story is the story. And in the story, God invites Adam to name the animals. And that mm. to me seems right away an invitation to participate that God isn't just controlling everything. Yeah, beautiful. I love that you brought up that example. And uh, just to uh, uh, bring up an example that's contrary to it, um, uh, in, in the Quran, when uh, the, the um, creation story is done, uh, uh, Yahweh doesn't ask Adam to name the animals. Yahweh decides, or Allah decides, what all the animals are going to be. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. It's an interesting contrast. And when you read the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, there's lots of calls for cooperation and collaboration between God and humans and even, you know, donkeys and other elements of creation. <laughs> yeah. um, and while there are, there's some of that in the Quran, it's less pronounced and I have some theories for why that is based on uh, philosophy, but I just thought I'd bring that up. Well, I think that's a, that's, that's a beautiful invitation then that as followers of Jesus, it isn't, as you were saying then, hey, God's got all of it and it's all done. And therefore... What is what are our lives, right? They aren't really yeah. anything, you know. Sort of like, you know, and this is no 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 negative thing about children, but part of the part of the learning process is we invite them in to help us. But to be honest, a lot of the time I don't need their help, right? I'm, I'm bringing them in to cut the food so that it's an, a thing we do together. When in reality, it'd be much easier if they were not in there cutting the vegetables, right? But it's an important thing for them to be a part of. But in this view, that isn't God. God isn't inviting us in just to, to, 
you know, have the experience, we are actually a vital component of the reconciliation, of the redemption, of the love. Exactly. I think that's a huge piece of this because, you know, if we're invited to do something alongside God, but God's going to get the results God wants, even if we don't cooperate. Yeah, he's just appeasing just, us. <laughs> yeah, it's condescending. You know, it's like, come on. I, I don't know about you, but I've been in job situations in which the uh, the boss already knows what the boss is going to do. And but then invites us to, you know, speak into the situation. (laughs) And when you know what the result's going to be, you just feel like, you know, what am I doing here? I don't have any significance in the theology. I believe God invites us to collaborate because the future can't be what it will be unless we cooperate in a positive way. Or to put it another way, love can't win unless we cooperate with the lover of the universe. That means what you and I do matters. What we do counts. Um, I noticed that when I say this, especially in a public setting, I noticed the reactions of people in the audience. There's a certain amount of people in the audience who hear me say what I just said, and you can see their shoulders go back and they're like, yeah, (laughs) here's a theology that makes sense. I know my choices make a difference and this fits with the way I live my life. And then there's a percentage of the audience whose shoulders slump and they're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. What I do matters. Oh, this sucks. You know, (laughs) Um, and it's if I've just put the whole world on their shoulders. And to those people, Mm. I want to say, yep, your life does matter, but you're not asked to do everything. You're asked to do your small part for making love win or helping love to win. Your part matters, but don't take on more than what you're asked to take on. And if you do that, you know, things will be fine. That's a beautiful invitation. I think it changes a lot when we recognize we get to be a part of it, that we are invited to participate in what's going on around us. But I also think it does something important to this line that is so frequently used in the Western church, especially that sin separates us from God. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've tried to dismantle this on the podcast a little bit, looking at sin and the relationship with God from different angles. But one of the things you said in your book that I think speaks exactly to what we've been trying to communicate. And I'm just going to read this quote from your book because it says, we do the estranging, not God, right? So to me, the broken part of the relationship is never God running away. If anything in scripture, God always goes to the, you know, he goes to Adam and Eve, he goes to Cain, he goes to people who, who are in sin. And it says, God's mind doesn't need to be changed about us. God's mind is set. God will always relate with and love us. That's guaranteed. We need to change our minds and actions about God and about ourselves and others. And it is just this statement that you are beloved, period, right? That's the end of the statement. We are loved. Yes. I'm glad you like that section. That's, um, you know, it's really in my mind, it's combining two key ideas about God and sort of putting an exclamation point point on them. One key idea is that God is present to all of creation. God is omnipresent to use the classic language. So you can never be separated from God as if God is over there and we're over here because God's always with us. We're never, you know, geographically uh, separated. 
but the other part of God's attributes is the love part, which is what you were emphasizing when you read that section. And that is not only is God always present to us in every moment, and we can never be separated from God, but God always loves us, always loves us in the sense of acting for our well-being. And that means that nothing we do can take us away from God's love or God's presence. Now, it is the case that even though God loves us and is present to us, we can not cooperate with God. We can do things to harm ourselves and, all, and others that God's not pleased with, but that doesn't diminish God's love for us one iota, and God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Well, I think that means then we don't have to try and get God's attention, right? It's not as no. if God is in the corner watching television and not paying attention and we need it because God's mad, right? As his back turned to <laughs> us or something. And we don't have to try and convince God of anything. I think there's a invitation and an, uh, to use the word open, an openness here to yes. recognizing that God is already close and we have the opportunity to experience that. And it doesn't matter the mistakes we've made, the things that have been done to us or the whatever my rate of things we tell ourselves of why God isn't close or doesn't or can't love me, God's actually right there. Uh, I totally agree. And that's good news. <laughs> it's, I think that's really, really good news. And, and so, you know, I wish we could keep talking about open and relational theology <laughs> forever, but I would encourage people to go check out your books. Um, so, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but before we sort of wrap up, what, might you offer as a word of challenge or encouragement to people related to open and relational theology? Again, I know we can't get into everything, but what's maybe something you would like people to walk away with? Well, Phil, um, my aim in life is to live a life of love. That is why I'm attracted to following this Jesus guy. And why I think love is the preeminent attribute of God. For me, love is the center, the focus. I know of no framework, no theoretical system, no, no way of looking at the world that makes sense of those deep intuitions I have about love. Intuitions that a lot of other people have as well, by the way. No way no theology makes better sense of those intuitions than open and relational theology and this new book that you've mentioned and read some from is an introduction to that way of thinking written so that uh, so that my mother can understand it <laughs> it's very accessible absolutely very accessible I really tried hard to do that because I think these ideas really matter a lot and they're they for too long have just kind of been bantied about in ivory towers among scholars. Um, when I got done writing this manuscript, Phil, you know, you can, you can go into uh, your word processing thing and it'll tell you what grade level the writing is written at. And this was at a seventh grade reading level. And I was like, yes, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. I want a book that you don't have to have a degree in theology to understand but has really radical ideas that aren't the same old, same old crap that we hear from so many people these days about God. Um, that's what open and relational theology, the book is all about. 
Well, I really appreciate that. I'm grateful you wrote it. I, like I said, I still have to wrestle with some of it. I am going to continue to think about it and um, live it out and try it out. And I would encourage other people to do the same because whether you become fully open and relational or certain aspects of it speak to your faith or your relationship with God, I, I can pretty much guarantee there's something in there that is going to help you take that next step forward. And the fact that love is at the center of it, man. That that's vital, right? We're already a large part of the way there. Good, good, good. So, Tom, if people would like to check out your books and your thoughts, where can they find you? Where can they go deeper? Sure, I have a personal website that's my full name, Thomas J. Ord. My last name is O O R D. I also direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology, and that website is the letter C, the number four and then ORT.com. We've been talking about this open and relational theology book, but I wrote a book uh, that came out a few years ago with the provocative title, God Can't. Hmm. And it's all about suffering and evil and a new way to look at that, that I think makes sense. And a lot of other people have found really helpful. So of all my 20 plus books, uh, these two, I think, are the ones that might be most helpful to folks who are listening to this. Well, I will make sure to drop links to all of that in the description. So if you're hearing that, friends, you can go check out those links below. Go check out the books. Go check out what Tom is go is doing, what he's up to. And man, Tom, thank you so much for your writing and your work and for taking the time to come share with us a little bit. I, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed the conversation, Phil. Thanks again for the opportunity. Anytime. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us for this conversation today. I hope you were blessed, challenged, and encouraged. And I would highly recommend that you go check out some of Tom's work at those links below. Check out his website, check out some of those books. I think it can be a blessing to you in your walk of faith. And then friends, if you enjoyed this interview, I also recommend going through the Rua Space podcast archives. We've had many different conversations like this, and I think you can find some other conversations that can be a blessing to you no matter where you're at in the journey. And then finally, I would also love if you would consider checking out the link below to the Rua Space Patreon page. Patreon is a place where you can help support the podcast for just a few dollars a month and gain access to some really cool exclusive content that we place there from live events and podcast episodes that are exclusive to Patreon to series such as exploring Revelation and experiencing Psalm 23. So lots of good stuff to go check out, friends. Thanks again for being with us today. Until next time, grace and peace be with you.